So we're going to be continuing today. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 14, that's where we're going to be today as we continue in our series um, with meals with Jesus, soul food, that when a meal with Jesus was actually more than just eating food, and um, it's going to be fun. I love the passage today, and uh, I hope it's challenging to all of us in this room as we enter in uh, to this next week and expecting what God is going to do in our lives, but not only that, for us to live out the model that Jesus gives us here in this passage. And so we've been going through Luke. If you're new or if you're watching online, we've been going through Luke, looking at different meals that Jesus had with other people. Last week, we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, or should I say 10,000 or more, but we were there and seeing how God's provision is always there for us. And today, we're going to be moving on into Luke chapter 14 in this amazing passage where Jesus is in the home of a Pharisee, a great Pharisee, as we look at it together. And what, I, what, what, the, what the, the, the sermon is titled today, and I hope this is going to be fun, How Not to Enjoy a Meal with Jesus. How Not to Enjoy a Meal with Jesus. So I just ask you from the beginning to get our blood flowing a little bit. This morning, I just ask you to think about for a moment, do you enjoy Jesus? You don't have to be the, you don't, you don't have to say it out loud, you don't have to be uh, like, you might say this morning, no, I'm struggling in that area. I just want to ask for one. Do you enjoy Jesus? If you had an opportunity to sit down at a meal with Jesus, to, to just eat a meal, you're sitting at a table like this, you and Jesus are breaking bread together, would you enjoy being with him? I'd like to think that most of us in this room, including myself, would say, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That'd be killer. That would be amazing. Of course, I would enjoy sitting at a dinner table or a meal with Christ. Absolutely. And I think that most of us would say yes, but I want to press on us today in a moment, maybe some things that are a reality in all of our lives that would hinder us enjoying Jesus because maybe quite like the Pharisees, we would be challenged by Jesus and then it would hinder our full enjoyment of him at that meal. Um, a number of years ago, I realized something about myself, and it comes up with what we're going to be talking about today. I realized some things that I was keeping from, that I had in my life that were keeping me from enjoying Jesus, and mostly what that came down to was pride. It was hindering me from fully enjoying and experiencing Jesus the way that he wanted me to. Now, I'm not talking about pride. Maybe you're thinking like, I always thought you were a prideful individual. Maybe so. I apologize. Let's make it right. It's okay. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm not talking about the pride where I feel like I have it all together. Hopefully, if you've been coming for a while, I acknowledge enough publicly that I don't have it all together. So then when I don't have it all together in normal life, you're not like, see, I told you so. I'm like, I already told you. I don't have it all together. I'm not talking about that kind of pride. I'm not talking about the kind of pride that thinks that I'm better than you, pride. No, the pride for me, rather, is a pride that lives unknowingly, I didn't know to myself, it lives in a state of not needing Jesus. 
Sure, I need him for salvation. I'm not saying that. Not needing him for everyday life or not living in a state of independence or or living in a state of dependence on Jesus. I was unknowingly living in a state of independence from Jesus. And I shared a little bit last week, and then God has been revealing things to me over the last number of years, bringing about after I realized it, why I'm like that, and kind of some of my, my childhood and things that I experienced in growing up, and why I functioned in that reality, even though I wasn't knowingly functioning in that reality. But I lived in a state where I wasn't fully dependent on Jesus. And I told you a couple of weeks ago, man, you want to talk about the, 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 the currency of the kingdom? The currency of the kingdom of God is dependence on God. And I was living in, a, in an opposite of that, pridefully, unknowingly, and I lived a life that was not really daily in need of him. And because of that, it kept me from fully enjoying Christ. And when we look at our passage today, we find that there are some barriers that keep us from enjoying Jesus, and they come back to the basis of pride. I mean, I would say, I would go so far as to say that most sin that you experience, at the end of the day, the basis is pride. It's us looking at Scripture, saying, man, this is what God said. This is the best way to live. Read, read the Sermon on the Mount. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and, and Jesus says, this is the way of human flourishing. This is the way that we, is best to live. And we say, I don't want to live that way. I live opposite of it. It's pride. And when we see in, in the lives of the Pharisees, as we sit at this meal with Jesus, I want you to do some hard work, as I, I call you to every week. I want us to do some hard work of looking at our own hearts and lives and see if there's anything in us. And maybe some of the things we bring up aren't exactly what it is for you, but there's other areas of pride in your life. I want us to do the hard work of looking at our own heart and soul because we're going to learn today that humility is essential for us to enjoy Jesus. Humility is essential for us to enjoy Jesus, to live rightly with Jesus. So we're just going to start. Pastor Alex already read the passage at the beginning of our time. So if you came in during the last song, he already read it at the beginning. We're going to go back over it. I just want to read the first six verses together. And I just want to point out two aspects about pride and humility. And we'll be done today. Hopefully we go home encouraged to live more like Jesus on this Palm Sunday. So look with me in verse one. Luke chapter 14, verse one, it says this. One Sabbath, when he, that's Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. They were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. I'll come back to that in a moment. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and he healed him and he sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. So Jesus has them dumbfounded here. And what we see here in this passage, I'm gonna go through it really verse by verse, is pride keeps us from enjoying Jesus. As we see here, the first thing we see is this, this whole idea of pride. We see that in the Pharisees. I wanna point out a couple aspects of it. So here, Jesus is at his third and final meal in the house or in the house of a Pharisee. And can I say, the the previous ones didn't go very well. 
If you want to go back, read uh, uh, in chapter 11 where Jesus is in the house of Pharisees and he starts saying, woe to you, woe to you. He's condemning them. So it's quite surprising, honestly, that he is here, again, invited not only to a house of the Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisees. I would imagine that if this guy was not present, they would have heard the word of Jesus basically condemning the Pharisees, saying, woe to you, woe to you. And I would have just made a side note, let's not have that guy over again. That's just me. You come into my home, you say, Wait, woe to Jim. You would never say woe to Sarah, but it'd be woe to Jim. You're not coming back over right? But some reason, he's invited back over. And within this, we, we get this many different facets of, of pride and disbelief and legalism and hypocrisy. And each of them are manifestations of the same picture that has its foundation in pride. And the first one you see is disbelief. This is Jesus dining at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And it's significant. It says on the Sabbath. Now, again, we don't know exactly why he's invited here. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Maybe they're trying to be good hosts. Let's just think the best at first, right? Always a good place to start. Maybe at best, they're inviting him as hospitality is huge in their culture. And Jesus is on his way, making his way to Jerusalem, ultimately where he'll give his life. And they're just being hospitable, giving him a place to lay his head on his journey to Jerusalem. Or they're there to watch him in some sense that they want to catch him. They want to have malicious intentions. Now, it's interesting. A meal for us today, maybe not in all circles, but for them was very different. When you had a meal at someone's house, it was almost like a reinforcement of social hierarchy. So this guy's a pretty influential individual. He's of noble status. We would assume that everyone else invited would likewise be of high status within the community. So it's interesting that Jesus is there. Because when you're there eating a meal together with them, it meant something to everybody else. Now, when you go further, the verb there, if you look at it closely, it says they're watching him closely, can imply someone lying in wait, ready to pounce. And so you kind of get the idea of what they're doing. They're there maybe with furrowed brows looking, trying to spot some incriminating thing that they can call him out for. Or they can say, man, you are, you are breaking the law in this way or that way. And they're there watching everything he does. It's reminiscent of Psalm 37 when it says, the wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. So the Pharisees here, they're prideful in their disbelief from what we can gather from the passage in the sense that they didn't believe Jesus. They were quite the opposite. Jesus has been in the home of two other Pharisees and it didn't go well. He called them out. Woe to you, woe to you. Here he is again in another Pharisee's home and they're sitting probably with disbelief, looking at him, waiting to catch him in act, sitting ready to pounce on him because they don't believe who he is. They don't believe what he's saying and they don't believe his interpretation of the law. And it's fascinating as they sit with pride, waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah. He finally comes fulfilling scripture and they're still sitting with pride. No, you are not the Messiah. You are not who you are. And they sit with disbelief, waiting to try to catch him in wrongdoing. Now, these are individuals that have probably seen Jesus do countless miracles. Countless healings and casting out demons and seeing him teach. And man, that guy has authority. We've never heard someone teach quite like that before. And in all of it, they still sit back with disbelief and say, no, I am not believing what that guy has to say. 
And a lot of times we give the Pharisees quite a hard time, which I think is warranted. But if I could ask how many of you here online, how many of you do the same thing out of pride? How many of us, you'd be like, I don't do that. I believe in Jesus. Well, I'm not saying you don't believe in Jesus, but how many of us have seen the good works that God has not only done in our lives and in other lives and heard the good news of the gospel, and yet in so many aspects of our life, we still are in disbelief of what God has to say. It's not that we're openly like, man, I totally believe the Bible is the total inerrant scripture, the word of God itself, God breathed, yes and amen, all right? But then if I just press on you, what areas of your life do you read the Holy Scriptures and it says to live one way, but you live in opposite of the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Word of God? And you say, you know what? It's okay. I know God says that about purity and my sexual life, but I'm not quite married yet, but I'm just going to live this way because I think I have a better way. How many of us live in one direction say, man, as a husband, I'm supposed to live my life as Jesus and lay my life down for my spouse and shepherd my family and come around my kids and my spouse and lead them spiritually. I know the Bible calls me to that, but Jim, I'm just really busy. And one day when I stand before the Lord, I know he's going to give me a break because he know I had a, a hard job. I mean, you go on and on. What's your thing? Where we look at the Pharisees, we're like, man, the pride of disbelief is so horrible in them. But then in, op- in opposition, when we look at our own lives, how do we live in light of Scripture? And I know what God says to do with my money, but all of my money is my money. My, 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 I know what God says about X, but I do Y. Because I think I know better than what God has, and God has for me, Right? Maybe you're here today or you're watching online. You've come to church for a while. You've been on the fringes. And, and maybe you've experienced through other people the gospel. You've heard what we're about to celebrate next week. That Jesus came, left heaven, came to earth, gave his life on the cross for you. And in all of that, all your response is is to offer your life to God and say, I, I trust in you and, and all that you did for me on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. And I want to follow you with my life. But it's not a halfway thing. I give you my whole life. You've been sitting on that for how long? In prideful disbelief. And haven't responded yet and say, God, I, I surrender all of me. A part of me, not sections of me, but all of me. And you placed your faith in Jesus and were rescued and redeemed. Maybe that's your action today. To stop sitting in prideful disbelief and surrender all to Jesus. But... As you look, as it goes on, this also this manifestation of pride of legalism. I think this is maybe hit on a little bit more of a sore subject in our church, the church, not Woodside or Woodside Lake Orion. I think some of the other campuses are more legalistic than us, so. It was a joke, anybody watching online? So the story turns to this individual who had dropsy, this man had dropsy. Now, dropsy's individual, Interesting, excuse me. It's, it's this accu- accumulation or abnormal accumulation of, of liquid within your cells that would manifest itself in maybe their, their stomach or their bowels and their, their limbs. And it would have been 
very bad. They would have been very swollen. The man was very sick. It would have been very apparent to everyone there that he was very sick. And now what's fascinating to me is now, again, meals are a place where you're showing status. I mean, you're bringing in people. If you're high status, you're bringing other high status individuals in. You're inviting them into this prominent dinner. So where did this dude come from? Why is a man with dropsy in the home of a well-known or ruling Pharisee? So you could come to a couple conclusions. Maybe they brought him there to catch Jesus in the act because Jesus has already healed on the Sabbath numerous times and they were irate that he did so. So maybe they're bringing him in because they're waiting, watching, ready to pounce. They're, they're bringing in this man. Maybe he'll heal him. Or maybe this man knew Jesus was there and he came and he found Jesus broken and says, hey, I need you because it says that Jesus responded. He responded to the Pharisees, but why did he respond Maybe the man walked in the door, and then he responded. There's a duck over there somewhere. <laughs> Love the ringer, whoever's it is. It's awesome. We don't know where the guy came from. Paul doesn't, or Luke doesn't really tell us, which is awesome, because unimportant to the story. But before healing the man, he asks a question. He says, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, this is where it gets interesting. According to rabbinical teaching, it would have been sinful or unlawful to heal on the Sabbath unless someone was of like death. They were in danger of life. They were going to die. And this man probably wouldn't have died that day. It could have been done the next morning. Jesus could have waited and healed him the next morning, but he doesn't. The interesting thing about it is there's nothing in Scripture or the law forbidding this man from being healed. So here you have the law that God has given and the rabbinical teaching of the Pharisees that they would hold that was sinful because they had exterior laws that they're teaching that said it would have been uh, wrong. What's amazing is Jesus has already gone above and beyond and, and, and healed on the Sabbath many other times, and it's made them so furious. And within this question, Jesus is confounding the Pharisees. You notice they didn't reply. They have nothing to say because they know at the end of the day, man, if I go back to the law, there is nothing there that says this. Man, if I say, yes, it's okay to, to heal on the Sabbath, at one point I'm gonna seem hypocritical because I've already said it's not. And at the same time, I might seem soft on the rabbinical teachings. On the other hand, if I say, no, then I'm not, uh, uh, um, I'm not empathetic towards someone who needs healing. And Jesus has them, as he always does, with a question he silences the crowd. Because for them, condemning Jesus is one thing, but hindering or denying recovery for an individual that needs healing is, a, is quite another. So when you look at it, the definition of legalism would be this. It's a way of keeping the law to gain acceptance with God. Keeping any type of law to gain acceptance with God. Now, the opposite of legalism would be what? Grace unmerited grace from God that none of you deserve, and me too. None of us deserve. At the end of the day, it's the opposite of legalism. And here in this moment, we have legalistic religion colliding with the grace of God. In one moment in this home, you see, legalistic religion has nothing to offer this man, but Jesus in a moment brings healing and grace and compassion What's fascinating is that the Pharisees have not yet recognized that they themselves are still in need of the unmerited grace of God and therefore they have nothing to offer a man that needs grace in a moment. 
All they've been experiencing is law, 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 law. So man, at the end of the day, it does funny things with the way we respond. Man, I don't have grace for this person. That in keeping the legalistic minutia at the moment, they had completely missed the point of the law of God. Love God and love your neighbor. They get wrapped up in the minutia of it all. And more than just being a way of keeping the law to please God, can I tell you, legalism comes out in a certain spirit. Do you know that? It comes out in a spirit all the time, in a failure to be humble, broken, amazed, and satisfied by the grace of God that is unmerited and given as a free gift of God. Because I'll tell you, man, if the way that I get God to love me is by doing all the right stuff, I don't know what grace is. I earned it. I gained it because of my working, because what I did. And man, I can tell you, attitudes that come out of this are pride, lack of mercy, lack of compassion, unkindness, a judgmental spirit, all of it, because we are not stunned and humbled by the grace of God in our own life. Later on in Luke chapter 18, there's this amazing parable that perfectly displays this. Uh, It's the, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. They go up to the temple, and one, the Pharisee goes up, and he looks down on the sinner and says, man, God, I'm so glad I'm not like that broken sinner. Well, this sinner goes up, and he beats his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One prideful One humble. And at the end, do you know what Jesus' application is? It's the same one he's going to get to in our passage. It's this. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And man, I'll tell you, pride, the pride of legalism keeps us from experiencing the grace of God. And in other people, it keeps us from letting other people experience the grace of God. Man, I wonder how many people in the room struggle as they walk through life, myself included, that man, this or that, and it, 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 it's this way of we have to do things this way and this way and this way, even though it doesn't contract or contradict scripture, but at the end of the day, it has to be that way because that's the way we always did it. It has to be that way. Why is that person doing that? And then it hinders us from extending grace in other people's lives because we're not living under the grace of God. I'll tell you, the way that you experience Jesus will ultimately define the way you treat other people in Jesus' name. Man, if you, if you are worshiping a God that gets upset at you when you break one little thing and he's gonna flip your car over going down the expressway, I'll tell you, you'll snap at every person that breaks the littlest of the law. It, it will impact us. And, and it goes a little bit further, as Jesus goes a little bit further in verses five and six, as it goes into the sin or the pride of hypocrisy. So they're silent. Jesus has, they have no reply to his question. But he says this, again, second question. Which of you, having a son or an axe, or ox, excuse me, that has fallen into the well on the Sabbath day will not immediately, now the word immediately is key, immediately pull him out. And Jesus, if you could just paraphrase, he's saying this, we would all do this. He's asking a question, but he's not looking for a response. At the end of the day, he's saying, man, we would all do this. And they all stay silent. Why are they all silent? Again, why can they not reply to Jesus? Well, it's amazing when you look into it, 
the, the, the regulations for the Sabbath, they were allowed to rescue their animals as did, uh, as it was taught in their, in their what we would call the Mishnah. So they were able to rescue their animal on the Sabbath if it had to happen. So what Jesus is getting at the end of the day, you would forbid the deliverance of a human, but you would treat your animals better than a human being. And then if you go further, Jesus' argument at the end of the day is this, is that if you're willing to violate the Sabbath to save an animal, why do you object to the healing of a person, a whole being, on the Sabbath? He's saying, man, if your child was in a ditch, particularly their own child, they would not wait till the next morning and be like, hey, here's some water and some food. Hope you're doing okay. But unfortunately, you know, it is Shabbat, so we're going to have to wait till the morning. I'll pray for you. Be warm and well-fed. No. Immediately, they would go and rescue to their child, or any child for that matter, or if it was their animal, like an ox, they would rescue it quickly. And what Jesus is saying at the end of the day, this is the rhetorical question he's trying to get to at the end of the day. He's implying Man, this man seized with dropsy is a child of God whose life is endangered. He's stuck in a ditch, but you're so indifferent to his plight because you haven't experienced the grace of God. He's saying, in a moment, you guys are so hypocritical. You would do this in other fashion if it benefited you. We're blinded by their prideful hypocrisy. I mean, when they look at it, they're so prideful to think that Jesus is doing Ryan all the while they would have done the same thing if it just benefited themselves. And if I could just press on this for a moment, how many times in our own lives do we do the same thing? We're outraged at the choices that others around us are making, but all the while we have no consideration of our own things. We're outraged. Did you see what so-and-so was doing with their life? All the while, the things that are in our own heart, our own mind, we're not outraged at all. Can I tell you, there are, there are countless people in this generation that are leaving the church, sweeping groups of, of people, and one of the main reasons is this right here, hypocrisy. It's not that we're doing wrong because we're broken and sinful. I think that's, that's, that's normative. They know that we're not gonna be perfect. The issue is, is that we are condemning everyone around us all the while we have a log in our eye. It's something much different. It's not that we're never gonna sin and we have to be perfect so that we can do everything else. No, at the end of the day, the issue is, is that we have brokenness and struggle and things that we're into and the way we're walking and living. And at the end of the day, it's in opposition to Scripture all the while. We love pointing out what everybody else is doing. We love pointing out what everybody else is doing in the world, and they're not even believers, and we can't even have it in our own business. Man, did you see that? I cannot believe they're associated with that political party. I cannot believe. Did you hear they're going to marriage counseling? Now, that might not be like what you're seeing in your mind, but all the while, judgment of other people at the same time. It's no wonder that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is out of your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take out the log of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to help your brother, to take out the speck out of your brother's eye. Hypocrisy runs deep within the global church the irony of this entire passage of all these expressions of pride is that this meal with Jesus is, is this. It's amazing when you look at it. 
is that the man before them with dropsy, who, who caused their reactions to disbelief and legalism and hypocrisy, is a picture of exactly what every one of them need. Isn't that fascinating? This man knows, man, I need something outside of myself to heal me, and I can't do it on my own, so he comes to Jesus, the only source of true healing, and he says, man, I need you. I, I, he evidently was there. He wanted to be healed by Jesus. And all the while, that's exactly what the Pharisees need. All those sitting at the table, that's exactly what each one of them needed. They needed to humbly say, man, I can't do this on my own. I need something outside myself to heal me of my brokenness. And I am running to you, Jesus. And that should be our reply every single day. Humbly before you, Lord, I come to your throne because I need you. Not just once, but over and over and over again. And I'll tell you, you can, you can come to church every Sunday. You can read your Bible every day. I'll tell you right now that pride is a source that will keep you from enjoying Jesus, and it manifests itself in countless ways. Maybe not one of the areas that I said today. Disbelief, legalism, hypocrisy, but maybe it's another way. And I want us to do, do the hard work today as we enter into Holy Week of examining our own heart and see if there's any thread of pride in our own heart. Maybe you're here and you're like, man, I feel like the Lord has been in opposition of me. It's not what you're saying. Jesus, it doesn't seem like Jesus is running with me. He's tracking with me. It seems opposite. It seems like he's actually in opposition of me. Can I tell you, maybe, maybe it's time to do the hard work of examining. James 4, 6 says, rightfully, God opposes the proud, and gives grace to the humble. For all of us who struggle with a hint of pride, man, let's humble ourselves. I'll tell you right now, quick application, this is free. You never want God to be in opposition of you. You never want God to be going against you. But the opposite, the way of Jesus is so different and Jesus shares this quick parable at the end at the dinner table to show them He's going to tell them that humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. Humility allows us to enjoy Jesus. Look in verse 7 with me. You're going to read down to verse 11. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose their place of honor, saying to them, when you've arrived by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you is to be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this person. And then you will, begin, or you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, to be, or comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in light of everything that has just transpired with the man with dropsy and the way that Jesus is seeing them jockeying for position at the table, he tells them a quick parable. And he wants to start off by telling them what not to do. He says, man, if you're invited to a wedding feast, don't come and sit at the place of honor. Say, say the individual, this is the, the feast, the person who invited them. And man, I want to sit at the place of honor. So I'm going to sit right here, man. This is the best place. I got here early so I could sit right here, man. I'm right next to them. I have access to them. Man, I am at their right hand. This is amazing. And I'm going to sit right here. And what an awkward moment when someone comes, the hostess says, hey, um, Jim, I have someone a little bit more important to you than you. Could you? You mind moving down? After everybody's there and you're like, oh, snap, man, I got I to gotta move all the way down 
there. No, he says, rather, man, if you're, if you're a person of humility, rather come all the way maybe down at the other end of the table somewhere down here and sit here, and then in a moment, you'll be honored in front of everybody because just maybe, because you're sitting in a lowly place, they will come to you and say, hey, Jim, no, you're my friend. Why don't you come down here and sit close to me? And then in that moment, you'll be honored by everyone. I love that. Now, is is Jesus just teaching like the dinner guest how to like act at a, at a, at a dinner? It seems odd. Like if you're, yeah, this is how you properly go to a wedding feast. No. If anyone you know hates staged humility that is really pride at the end of the day, Jesus is not teaching them some way of, of, of manipulating a false humility. No. What Jesus is doing at the end of the day, he's teaching an eternal principle, a spiritual principle that will be shown true at the end of the age. Because as one day, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. And in verse 7, it reveals the principle. This is the nimshah, the final great reversal at the end of the parable, which often Jesus did. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This would have overturned all of their normalcy, their social structure when you get invited because, man, they're just jockeying for position, wanting to be at the place of honor. It would have been almost scandalous in a moment for them, for Jesus to share this with them. And in a moment, like we always need to be reminded of, Jesus is showing that the way of the kingdom is much different than the way of this world. The way of the kingdom is in opposition of this world. Jesus is saying in a moment, the kingdom of God is self, in the kingdom of God, excuse me, self-seeking is self-defeating. Humility is the way of the kingdom. In a moment, Jesus is saying, he's teaching them the way of true exaltation and enjoying Jesus is to be lowly and to be humble, to make oneself low and allow God himself to exalt us. I mean, the greatest picture you already know is, is Philippians, if you've been around Christianity long. Philippians, right? Jesus not only teaches this, he's the greatest example and expression of this. He says in Philippians, through the Apostle Paul, do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, right? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. If you're in Christ today, this mind is yours in Christ Jesus, who thought he was in the form, or excuse me, in though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God thing to be grasped. He didn't hang on to it and be like, no, I will not humble myself. But emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God, what? What did God say would happen? You humble yourself, you'll be exalted. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is our example. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way that Jesus sets forth. It's really fun um, Sarah and I, ever since we went on a sabbatical last summer, have been doing marriage counseling. I know instantly people are like, oh my gosh. I love it. We didn't necessarily need it. We just wanted to work on some stuff. We've been 15 years in marriage this summer. 
And it's been amazing. Every month, just Friday, we had our, our last one. Every month, we meet with a counselor, a couple in Denver, Colorado, via Zoom. And it's been amazing. This last week, we were going over needs that each of us have that are air, water, or food to us. Like, we can't live without these needs in the relationship. And you're just going with them. And I love the way they push on you. They say, hey, Jim, at the end of the day, this might not make sense to you. You might actually hate doing it. You might struggle in the process of doing it for Sarah in the relationship you have with her. But at the end of the day, you're doing it because you love them. And it's going to take a measure of humility to work on this for your spouse because that's what God calls you to. And so we're going through being very open, like this is what I need in a relationship, this is what I need in a relationship, and just saying before each other, I'm going to do those things because I love you. I'm going to do those things to the best of my ability because I know that God called me to live self-sacrificing. It may not make sense to me, and at moments you might be like, as often people do in marriage, well, they're not meeting my needs, so I'm not meeting theirs. Can I tell you, in every marriage that I've ever helped try to reconcile, ones that don't make it, at the end of the day, it's a lack of self-sacrifice and a lot of selfishness. Not every case, but a lot of them. I don't want to. I deserve. Can I tell you? That's not the way of the kingdom. This posture of pride is counterintuitive to the kingdom of God. And humility is counterintuitive to the world we're living in. Man, the way of the kingdom is different. The way of this kingdom is about exalting oneself rather than humbling it. And man, the world does not believe this. I don't care where you go, the world does not believe this. When you look at politics, do you see humility? We can all say amen to that. I don't care where you land. When you look at executives in high places around the world, do you see humility? Sometimes, but mostly no. Can I dare say, even in the churches today, many times, do we see humility from leadership? Not always. Because unfortunately, the ways of the world that, that, that call us to jockey for position and pride and getting yours and name calling and all of this different stuff gets in the way of living for the kingdom in humility. And it's opposite of the way of the kingdom. Man, this, this, this meal shows us that if we want to enjoy Jesus, we want to be a part of the kingdom and see God work in our lives, we have to embrace humility. Don't get sucked in to the way of this kingdom. So how are you doing in this area? Are, are there areas in your life you need to turn from pride and embrace humility? Consider others better than yourselves. Look to the interests of others before your own. And in your marriage, as I just even in my own example, does there need to be a forsaking of pride and, and, a, and a moving towards humility? with your neighbors, places you do work, human relationships. I don't care, your kids. Man, I can tell you the most freeing times I've ever had with my kids is when I had to come back to them and say, I'm sorry. Dad's, dad's broken. Dad's human. I miss, make mistakes too. And to see my kids be like, it's okay, Dad. But I'll tell you what, it takes a lot of humility to tell your young kid, like, I was wrong and you were right. But it happens more than we know, but we're more prideful than humble to go back to our children and admit it. But I can tell you what, it'll do 
major things in your child's life to hear you say, I was wrong. Dad messed up. And as we consider this passage, I love it. We can't forget today what today means. Just a couple chapters later, in Luke 19, we read of Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday. And how do you see Jesus in this moment? I love the way that God orchestrates things. That we talk about this passage on Palm Sunday because we see Jesus riding in on a donkey, not a stallion. Right? One of the most celebrated moments in his life where people are worshiping and there's palm branches. We're going to have that out in the lobby afterwards. It's going to be fantastic. I'm kidding. There won't be any palm branches. It's, it's just amazing to me how you read that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords preferred humility on a donkey rather than a stallion and a parade and everything else. That he was literally in a moment fulfilling what Zechariah said in the Old Testament when he says, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this meal, and throughout Jesus, he sets the standard for Christian living, and that is humility. That Jesus shows us the way of the kingdom. It's not a way of pride. It's quite the opposite. The way of the kingdom shows that humility is essential to anyone enjoying Jesus. How are you doing in that area? And where do you need to make changes? I'm gonna invite the band to come out. We're just gonna sing a song, I Surrender. And I want you to just take a moment, maybe sing. Yes, I like that. But take a moment just to examine your own heart and what are the areas that you need to surrender before God. Would you stand to your feet? I'm gonna pray. And I'm just asking for the spirit of God to reveal those moments, those places, those areas of your heart and your life where there needs to be a forsaking of pride and an embracing of humility as you move forward into this next week. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the moments we have, the, the meals we're able to see with you the heart you have, and the kingdom of God. God, we just, it's, it's so amazing and rich to look and see how you, Lord, interacted with a man who had dropsy and taught a lesson for all of us, and it's still teaching today. May we take to heart your, your parable and embracing humility and, and rejecting the, the idea and the heart of pride. And even as we sing now in a moment, as I look out at this group of people all over and those online as they're sitting in their car or in their living room, in their place, wherever it is, God, uh, uh, man, God, I just ask in a moment, the spirit of God would wash over this place and, and show each person individually where it is that they need to surrender their pride and embrace humility. God, I pray for marriages in this room that are being broken because of the pride of spouses and ask that God in a moment, the spirit of God, you would move in their hearts and their lives and say no more, embrace humility in today and make it right. God, I call for that in other areas of our lives, the way we interact with others that the world would look on and see, yes, we're broken, we make mistakes, but we're humble because we're broken and the only reason we stand is because the unmerited favor and grace of God in our lives. God, help us today and now in this moment, in this week, to surrender all to you. It's in Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.